What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 55, Dieting, Body Image, and Eating Disorders with Chelsea Buffum, Licensed Mental Health Counselor. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, Food for Life cooking instructor, health and wellness coach, and passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, behavior change, and motivation so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I hope that you keep coming back as a regular listener. You can find more of my work, including health and wellness videos, at VeggieFit Kids on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Are you ready to get started? Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio, Veggie Lovers. I hope that you're having a plantastic day. I am so excited to be here with you today. I just got done recording such just oh, just a powerful episode that I really had fun recording and I was really excited about. Even yesterday, it was hard for me to just kind of relax and chill and get ready for this episode because I knew it was going to be great. So good that I already know that we're going to do another one together. I really hope you like it. I hope that you keep an open mind and listen to what Chelsea and I have to say in this episode because I... I really feel like it can make an impact in the lives of so many people. And this is just barely tiptoeing into this conversation. It's just entry level, just explaining some of the concepts. And hopefully in the next episode we record together, we can get even deeper into some of these concepts. But before I talk to you about Chelsea and tell you more about her, I wanted to remind you about a few things. One... There is now a call-in voicemail for listeners to call and leave their questions because this is so fun and I did it on the last episode and in every episode that I answer a question, it will be at the end of the podcast after the interview, I will tack on a few minutes of answering a question from a listener. The call-in line is 509 972 Six five eight two. Again, that is five zero nine nine seven two six five eight two. Alternatively, if you do not want to call and leave a voicemail, you can email me your question, and I can read it 
on my episode. And the email address that you would use is veggiedoctor at veggiefitkids.com. Veggie doctor is all spelled out V-E-G-G-I-E-D-O-C-T-O-R at veggiefitkids.com. So please send me your questions. I would love to answer them. In addition, if you don't mind, please rate and review my podcast. I would really appreciate that. I would also really appreciate if you share with your friends and family or somebody that you think may benefit from my podcast or specifically any one of the episodes because it helps promote the podcast, get it around and help more people learn about all these wonderful guests I have on the show and some of the great resources and concepts and really health promoting ideas that we talk about on here. So please share the podcast, rate, review it, show me some love because I know you're out there. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you tuning in and listening to these episodes. And if you have ideas for future episodes or guests that you would love for me to interview on the show, send those my way too. That helps me pick guests and I'm getting ready for version 3.0, which we will launch in April after I take a little break to work on my book and get my manuscript done. Without further ado, let me talk to you about Chelsea Buffum. Chelsea Buffum, MSLMHC, is a licensed mental health counselor who specializes in treating eating disorders. She owns her own outpatient practice right here in Yakima, Washington, and is passionate about how stigma, discrimination, and social determinants of health impact our relationship to food and our bodies. She uses a health at every size lens when working with clients, as disconnection and dissatisfaction with our bodies is often driven by an intense and culturally sanctioned desire to lose weight. She believes that body shame is rarely a good and long-term motivator to engage in healthy behaviors. She graduated from Whitworth University with a bachelor's degree in sociology and from Central Washington University with her master's in mental health counseling. Her research has focused on attitudes and stigma towards those who are in larger bodies and or have binge eating disorder. Prior to opening her practice, Chelsea worked as a clinician at CWU's Student Medical and Counseling Clinic and developed CWU's first eating disorder treatment protocol. She has experience in residential treatment facilities as well as rehabilitative homes. You can learn more about her at ChelseaBuffumTherapy.com. That's spelled C-H-E-L-S-E-A-B-U-F-F-U-M therapy, T-H-E-R-A-P-Y.com. She also has a Facebook page and is on Instagram. So I hope you'll look her up. She only sees clients in the state of Washington. She can do some online therapy for clients in the state of Washington, but also sees them here in person in Yakima. I am just, I feel so fortunate that we have such an amazing person as Chelsea here in Yakima. We just have this resource for people here, especially if you are struggling with your body image, an eating disorder, recurrent dieting, binging, any of those kinds of things. She's a fabulous resource. I hope that you will find her voice soothing. She's just so intelligent, engaging, and we have a wonderful conversation. 
Some of these ideas you may not have heard of before, but I want you to keep an open mind because we do live in a culture where we're used to hearing one thing about body size. So please, relax, put on your headphones, and listen to this episode. I hope that you really enjoy it, and I will see you guys next time. Kelsey, this is so exciting. And I know I say at the beginning of every single one of my podcast episodes, it's exciting, but I I actually was giddy yesterday when <laughs> I left the office. I was like, I have my podcast interview with Chelsea tomorrow. And I was talking to Alejandra here at the office, going over some of the questions and poor Alejandra, you know, she's my office manager, personal assistant. She does everything for me, but she always has to like pause what she's doing so that I can launch into these like talks. <laughs> and she's like, why didn't we just record that? You know, I was like, I just get on, you know, I just get on my soapbox and I get so passionate and this is going to be so much fun. I can just tell. So Chelsea, we want mm. to know about you. So tell, tell me more about your journey. How did you even mm. discover health at every size? Can you tell us a little bit more about what health at every size is and why you use these principles in your practice? Totally. Yeah. And likewise, I'm so excited to be here. This is my favorite topic. Um, so before I started using health at every size professionally, um, I discovered it personally about 12 years ago. Um, and this was kind of when it was starting to become more mainstream um, as part of like blogging. There were a lot of bloggers out there. Um, Health at Every Size, the book by Linda Bacon had come out um, maybe a year prior to that. And I found it because I was struggling with my own eating disorder at the time um, and kind of had done a lot of treatment and a lot of recovery oriented stuff, um, but really hadn't gotten to a place of like, how does this work in my body? long-term? How does this um, really go along with the rest of my life? Because there were so many like meal plans and how do you, um, you know, incorporate food generally um, throughout the rest of your life. And so what I found health at every size, what I had actually done was go to Google and type in, is it okay to be fat? Mm. Because I was so worried about gaining weight. I mean, that's the hallmark of an eating disorder, right? So I was so fearful about gaining weight and I really didn't feel okay being fat. And so I typed that into Google and what came up was the whole fatosphere, blogosphere that was basically saying, yeah, it is, it is okay. And that was the first introduction for me of like, okay, maybe my body is really okay where it is and it will be okay where it lands in the future. And I can start to really hone in on what feels good for me to eat, um, what feels right for my body, what feels um, right as far as movement goes, what feels like really um, comforting and healthy and all of that good stuff. Because before then I was so disconnected. So then fast forward into professional life, you know, going through grad school and um, becoming a therapist. This is really what I wanted to focus on. Um, and the movement has grown so much since then. And even before that, I mean, there was, there's been so many people that have been involved, but it's just kind of exploded now, which is lovely and great. And we're trying to get the message out even more. 
Yeah. So tell me more, what are the principles? What are the components of health at every size? Mm-hmm. So health at every size is a paradigm shift um, from basically the weight-centered approach to managing health or being healthy. And basically what it means is you can adopt healthy behaviors um, without focusing on weight or weight loss. And there's kind of an offshoot right now talking about how we really need to improve access to health behaviors as well, not just individual health behaviors, because there's all sorts of stuff that goes into that, right? Um, money, um, you know, discrimination, those sorts of things really impact our access to healthful behaviors. But essentially what health at every size is, is we can focus on these things without focusing on weight because focusing on weight gets us into a really bad spot. It's really harmful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I am so on it. And whenever you said that you put into Google, is it okay to be fat? Like I got full body chills Mm. because I mean, that's the, that's the problem, right? We're focusing on getting to a certain weight. We're focused on getting to a certain body type that for some people may not be accessible. And we end up doing so many things that are the opposite of health promoting. We end up doing things that harm us and damage us, not just physically, but psychologically. And this is starting so young. So I've been doing research for my book, which I'm writing a book on intuitive eating in children. And so looking up all these stats to include in the book, and I found that at least 80% of Americans are unhappy with the appearance of their bodies. 80%, that's Mm. everybody, men and women included. Of course, whenever you isolate genders, females, the number is higher percentage compared to men. And then it's even higher in the younger, well-educated women. So why are we so dissatisfied with our bodies? Mm -hmm. You know, I think over the years, we've become more focused on weight as opposed to less focused. And there is a huge industry behind weight loss. Um, The last number I looked at, and don't necessarily quote me on this, but it's like $80 billion is going into the weight loss industry. Mm -hmm. Um, We're promoting bariatric surgery and there's huge weight loss drugs um, that come out all the time or they're trying to be pushed. Um, So collectively as a culture, we really focus on dieting, weight loss, um, and kind of that term, and I'm going to use quotes, um, you can't see me on the podcast, but quotes of like the obesity epidemic. Um, And with all of that focus, right, if you're thinking about kids who are watching their adult parents kind of get really panicked about their weight, they pick that up so young and learn from a very young age, okay, I'm not okay in the body I have, and I need to constantly be guarding against any sort of weight gain. And um, so the more we kind of become focused on health and diet and weight loss, in reality, that is promoting body dissatisfaction. That has the direct effect of increasing that. And you can see that, you know, from a younger and younger age of folks being admitted to residential treatment facilities for eating disorders, um, really, really young kids talking to their parents and saying, um, mommy, am I fat, right? And the fact that they even know that that's a problem is an issue. Yeah. The term that I've been seeing in the literature is called normative discontent, Mm. which I love Mm. because basically it almost means like 
if you're not unhappy with your body, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> you know, like it's so, <laughs> yeah. it's so normal for us to get together with our friends and be like, yeah, I'm on a diet again. I feel like I have my stomach and my butt and I need to tone up this. It, it's, it's, it's like, that's expected. Right. It's part of our culture and we should be unhappy with our bodies. Normative discontent. It's normal to be unsatisfied with our bodies. And you're right. Uh, the literature is shocking that kids as young as five, especially girls already know what dieting means. And by six years old, they already want thinner bodies, mm -hmm. little babies, which every time I even say that, like my eyes tear up because I was, I was there at one point in my life, but I don't want children to even worry about that. I want them to be kids and play with dolls and, uh, you know, just be in their happy world. So yes. it is something that just is all around us. The media influences us, Instagram, Facebook. It's really hard to get away from. And then it leads to, of course, dieting. So 50% of Americans have ever dieted in their lives, but 30% have seriously tried to lose weight between three and 10 times in their lives. So the average is seven times, seven attempts at serious weight loss. And we often think of dieting as a way to get healthier and more fit, but can it also be harmful? What are the disadvantages of dieting, especially recurrent dieting? Mm -hmm. Well, because of my field, um, you know, I'm an eating disorder specialist. So dieting is the number one risk factor for developing an eating disorder. So that's one big risk. Um, I always say come January, um, if you don't want to have an eating disorder, don't go on a diet. Uh, oftentimes folks develop an eating disorder following a diet. And I would even argue that dieting in of itself is disordered eating. Um, it's a disconnection from our bodies. Um, we can't listen to our bodies. It's restrictive. There's all sorts of factors in that. Um, but dieting comes with it also a lot of um, risks for depression, anxiety, sleep issues, relationship issues. I mean, the term hangry came about for a reason, right? <laughs> uh, so we get frustrated, we get irritable. Um, and then the other risks are truly physiological. So weight cycling has been demonstrated. And if you don't know what weight cycling means, it means dropping weight, um, you know, increasing weight, dropping weight, increasing weight. Um, and weight cycling has been demonstrated to cause a lot of health issues um, that may, we may be attributing to um, higher body weight, but in reality is actually caused by the stress your body goes under by losing so much weight than gaining it all back. Yeah. Um, people often believe that, okay, well, I, this time, this time I'm going to lose the weight and I'm really going to keep it off. Except that our bodies are really, really, really good at getting back to a weight that's um, healthy for us. And they are, um, they guard against weight loss. They don't want us to be in that famine stage. So they're going to override any willpower, any self-control you may have to get back to a weight where you are not, or not, are no longer starving yourself, essentially. Um, so that's something to, to keep aware of too. But dieting, all sorts of issues come with dieting. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I wanna point out too, because I have a PhD in dieting. <laughs> so I'm an expert yeah. dieter. Yeah. I've done it. I, I started dieting around the age of nine and 
did that for mm. many decades. So um, it's not just physiologic changes, but it's mental mental changes. There's actually things, the behaviors that you start doing that you didn't do before. And one of the the outcomes that people often see is binge eating. Exactly. You know, so so binge eating disorder can sometimes stem from dieting, especially chronic recurrent dieting, because you're trying to suppress your caloric intake while you're surrounded by all this food. And, you know, all of these changes start taking place in your mind. And for some people that leads to where all of a sudden you have this feeling of loss of control and you can't stop eating, even if you feel like you're about to burst and you can never get full, you can never get that feeling of fullness. Mm-hmm. And it's all, it's meant, you know, it's like a mental behavioral slash physiologic, like all of these changes happen that you would just not realize would happen before. So, I mean, it, it's just it's a big problem that a lot yeah. of people don't realize that's happening to them. And, they, and then they blame themselves, right? Oh, I'm just a binge eater. I'm just an overeater, not realizing that they've been dieting recurrently over and over and over again. And they didn't have those habits when they were younger before they started dieting. So exactly. Yeah. It's just dieting, really, really complex. Yeah. Dieting certainly causes those changes in the brain. And when you know, the literature is demonstrating with binge eating disorder um, and the whole movement around it right now is if we're talking about binge eating disorder and someone's walking into my office, one of the first questions I'm asking is how are you restricting? Mm-hmm. And they're often saying, well, I don't restrict at all. I'm a binge eater, right? They're, they're defining themselves that way. But we're not just talking about physical restriction, which is what comes with the diet, even though that's often happening. We're often talking about mental restriction. What foods are totally off limits? Because as soon as you're saying something is off limits, what happens? They get shinier. Think about, you know, if I say, don't think about the pink elephant in the room, you immediately just thought of one, right? Um, So don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't go towards that. Don't have it. Um, And so folks often are engaging in binge eating behavior in response to restriction, as opposed to it just being food addiction is thrown around all the time right now, right? Um, or it just being their set, their own willpower. Yes, yes, I love that. It's that feeling of scarcity that you create from all yes. of these food rules. And the food rules can be, re- I mean, they can be anything. Like the rule of you must not eat past 6 p.m. And suddenly at 6.15, you're like, I want to binge because it's 6.15, you know, it's like past the time you're, right. you know, you're giving yourself the rule. Nope. You can't eat again until 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. And, right. and that's just those little subtle food rules that can lead to really very interesting changes in your brain and in your behaviors. Mm-hmm. So one of the other things that I wanted to kind of touch on too, before we get deeper into maybe talking about eating disorders and intuitive eating is something that I know that um, you like to explore, which is this fat phobia. So a Gallup poll that I recently saw was really interesting. And I caught this, that they found that 76% of the people that they polled reported that either they or a loved one had not had any serious health problems from their obesity. So 76% said I'm obese, a loved one is obese, but they haven't had any serious health problems. However, 
when they asked, is obesity harmful? 83% said it is very harmful. Mm. Isn't that fascinating? Yes. So what does this fat phobia do to us in our health journey and, and how we make decisions? Yeah. So fat phobia, you know, the fear of fat essentially is pervasive in our culture and you can find it at the doctor's office. You can find it at um, your support group. You can find it at your kid's play date. You can find it anywhere. Fat phobia is even just, um, you know, you're in the mirror with your girlfriends and you're pinching this and that and being like, oh my gosh, look at, you know, X, Y, and Z on my body. It's the fear of fat. And it's also this um, concept that fat is bad. It's really not okay to be fat. Um, and, you know, the bigger effect of that is kind of what we're talking about with diet culture and the harmfulness of diet culture, because doctors are promoting that, um, everybody around us is promoting that. Um, and what we're talking about with fat phobia, I mean, oftentimes people think, oh, the word fat is terrible. We shouldn't be calling people fat, but let's ask the question why, because fatness or being fat is simply a descriptor, just like thin or tall or short, blonde hair, brown hair, those sorts of things. It's a descriptor. And so why are we putting fat in this bad category when this is a human descriptor of folks? Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of discrimination. I think people don't realize this, but so much discrimination against people who are in larger bodies, um, who have fat bodies, right? If you think about going to um, the restaurant, is there gonna be seating that comfortably fits folks, right? And it's discrimination when someone walks in and there's like only booths to sit at, right? Um, how does that person walking into that restaurant feel, right? Mm -hmm. Do they want to be engaging in behaviors that are social, that are healthy, that are out and about when they already know that their body is not allowed to be in that restaurant or cannot be in that restaurant? Similarly with clothing, right? Um, mo many, many stores do not carry sizes that fit the entire population, right? Or at least most of the population, let's even say that. And so folks who are walking into stores knowing that they're not gonna find clothes that fit their bodies, what does that tell them again? My body is not okay the way it is. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about health in general, right? Because we're in the health profession, we want to help people, we want to help people be healthy. We're not looking at discrimination, the stress, the stigma, right? Those sorts of things and how those are impacting people's health. Um, if we could really look at like, you know, the stress and discrimination and the feelings that people feel when they're walking into that restaurant or into that clothing store, that might account for a lot of the health issues that fat people face. Yeah. And just like that Gallup poll was saying, many people who are in fat bodies, and I'm using that term deliberately, we're reclaiming that word, right? As just a descriptor. Um, but many people who are in fat bodies do not experience health issues. So it's really complex, but basically fat phobia is kind of the, the discrimination, the stigma, um, the fear of being in a fat body or even being around someone in fat, in fat body. I, when I was doing research for my master's thesis, there was a study that, you know, um, folks didn't even want to be around, like sit next to a fat person as opposed to a thin person in the airport. Like, like there was an automatic distance between that. And so that's a real, real problem. If we're talking about health, we need to be talking about discrimination, again, access, all of those things. 
um, not just trying to reduce an individual's weight. Yeah. And, and I'll take it back just to the medical profession because I'm a physician and, and I have to admit, you know, we all learn lessons, right? And I've definitely yeah. been there before where I'm like talking about these statistics and childhood obesity and it's an epidemic and we need to do this. You know, we need to help parents make changes. And definitely my goal is to help kids be healthy. Um, and there's ways Absolutely. to do that. But whenever... Whenever we fear monger and we tell people just because you are a certain weight or a certain size, that automatically makes you unhealthy. Even if you feel fine and you feel great and you're doing everything you want to do in your life, that triggers changes in what they do because automatically they're afraid they may feel ashamed, especially since most people, this is also found in this Gallup poll, most people believe that being obese is a matter of personal choice. It's because of diet and lifestyle. And somebody could easily change that if they wanted to. That's the belief. So whenever we have that belief and we tell people you're obese, you're unhealthy, you're going to cost us millions of dollars in diabetes care, that shame, that, that guilt the decision to make to diet over and over and over again, the depression, the anxiety related to all that, like you were saying before, that in itself is a is an obstacle for people to actually look at, okay, well, what are the healthful things I can do in my life? Where am I right now? What is my my joy? What is my physical activity level? And instead of focusing on that, they're just focusing on the next fad diet of losing weight, or let's do bariatric surgery because that's the only way I'm going to be able to do it. And it causes so many more problems than actual benefits, you know? And it's just like mm-hmm. totally, and I know that a lot of people are listening to this podcast because this is not a popular topic, honestly, and you know this, and it's still rejected by a lot of health and all these people in the health, you know, weight loss field. It's not popular. So I know a lot of people are going to listen to this and dismiss it. But whenever you just look into it, it just makes so much sense that we're doing it the wrong way. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're promoting yeah. the wrong thing. Right, exactly. I mean, I think about just the paradox of, you know, some of my clients or folks I've heard who are like, I would love to start moving, but I can't go to the gym because I'm, I fear being judged. And right, our instinct is is to be like, oh, you won't be judged. Everyone's focused on themselves, not on you. But that's not true. You know, I, we, I think we need to validate that because people are literally judged. So we're talking about a healthful behavior, even if someone wants to go to the gym and engage in some really great exercise that feels good for their bodies, they're walking into a place that's already harmful, that's already essentially violent to them, right? Yeah. So it's completely paradoxical. If we want to improve health or improve people's connection to their bodies, um, then we cannot be focused on um, this essentially. And I think the other piece I was going to mention is, you know, people often believe that health at every size means healthy at any size, that Mm -hmm. anybody can be healthy at any size. And that's not what health at every size is saying whatsoever. Um, what we're saying is, you know, if you can, if you have access to being able to intuitively eat and eat what your body is wanting and move in a healthful way, then your body is going to settle out where it needs to be. Now, that may not be the weight you want it to be, 
but it's, you can be healthy at the size you're meant to be at. It's not saying, okay, you know, everybody is healthy at every single size um, in the world, right? For me personally, that I am healthy at the size that I'm at currently, um, but may not be healthy 20 pounds from now either direction. Exactly. It's, it's changing the outcome goal. So instead of Mm -hmm. saying, let's get everybody to a BMI of 21 because studies show whatever about longevity and health. Instead of that, let's take this information we know about healthy eating, healthy movement, sleep, stress level, and focus on that instead of focusing on this number or clothing size. The number of clothing size may or may not change. It may get to a place that's closer to what you want it to be. And for some people, it may be exactly where they want to be, but it's probably not going to be this one BMI number for everybody. It's just not going to happen. We're all different. We're all different types of bodies and humans. And I mean, that just seems so obvious to me now, but at one point it did it, you know? So it's changing the outcome goal. Let's not tell people, okay, just do whatever you can to get to this weight. How about let's focus on the healthy habits? Because it is still, health at every size still is about health. It's still about trying to get people to a place where they feel healthy and and they're doing the things that they want to do, but it's taking the weight number out of the equation. Mm -hmm. So thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. And can we talk about the BMI for a second? You know, that is still so in our culture, you know, and I, I mean, I think you can speak to this a little bit more, Dr. Yami, but the, the BMI was developed by a statistician in the 1800s for insurance companies, and yet we're using it as a health marker oftentimes, mm-hmm. and arbitrarily even. I don't even know if it matches up to the bell curve of what our society actually looks like, but we've defined people in these underweight, normal weight, overweight, and obese, and then morbidly obese categories, right, where um, there may not be so much correlation between health and those categories whatsoever. And in fact, in my practice, what I often see is that, um, especially folks who have been really um, like underweight for their bodies for a very long time, they often have to weight restore, um, especially in anorexia treatment to an overweight um, BMI uh, Mm -hmm. for their bodies so that they can actually function so that their heart works um, okay. So that they often for women get their Uh, menstrual period back, right? So that they can actually be calm around food. So the BMI is complete BS. um, And yet we still kind of use this very old uh, marker, essentially for health, as opposed to talking about other real numbers um, that would be markers. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm still connected to it because I'm a physician and that's still the standard we use. And also the reason I mentioned it is because it is something that's talked about a lot in, in the healthcare field and in people trying to get people quote healthier is these numbers. And so, but basically the point is just ignore those numbers for now and focus instead on just trying to do the things that are health promoting. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. What do you want to talk about next? Do you want to talk about intuitive eating a little bit and then we can talk about eating disorders or do you want to talk about eating disorders? <laughs> so many sure. Things I'm about. sure they'll dove. I'm sure they're do- they'll dovetail. So intuitive yeah. eating sounds great. Yeah. Okay. So then, so one of the, one of the things that health at every size, um, the principles around it, it aligns perfectly with intuitive eating. So what is that and how can people learn to start practicing that in their day-to-day yeah. lives? 
intuitive eating essentially means tuning into your body, what it's, um, I mean, essentially hunger and fullness, but also how it feels, um, tiredness, thirst, um, exhaustion, right? Pain, all of these sorts of things also go with intuitive eating as well, but you're tuning into your hunger, your fullness, um, what feels good in your body. Um, for example, folks with, um, like celiac disease, right. Are not going to feel good when they eat gluten. That's not intuitive. Right. Um, so essentially that's all it means. It's tuning into your hunger and fullness and eating accordingly. Mm-hmm. And that's easier said than done. Right. Because I feel <laughs> like most of us have gotten out of tune with our hunger because of dieting. So we've learned to ignore our hunger or if we get to that place where we restricted for too long and start binging, we just blow right past <laughs> fullness yeah. of satiety. So if somebody doesn't, I mean, where, where can people start if they've kind of gotten out of line with that hunger and satiety? Mm-hmm. Well, I do want to throw a book recommendation out there. Mm -hmm. Intuitive Eating by um, Elise Thresh and Evelyn Triboli is a great starter point, and it kind of leads you through all of these steps. But the first step, of course, is to kind of recognize diet culture and where it is in your life, because that's where it's going to derail you all the time. Diet culture and food rules, those sorts of things, is really going to impede your ability to tune into your body. But then what I often do with clients is start to just monitor without judgment, um, hunger and fullness signals. And I often use a scale for that. So um, on a zero to 10 scale, zero being um, starving, so hungry, like everything on the menu looks good, right? 10 being Thanksgiving full and really, really, really stuffed, right? And five being kind of that comfy, happy medium. And I really hesitate to give this to folks too soon because people often take it and use it as a diet. Again, right? I must eat only when I'm hungry and I must stop all the time when I'm full. And that's not really intuitive. Um, Intuitive eating is flexible. It's, um, you know, sometimes it means not, it doesn't mean moderation when you're going out to like pizza with some friends. It can be very intuitive to have an extra slice of pizza because you're having a great time, right? Um, So, I often use that and then I tell folks, okay, just start to monitor, just start to monitor where you're falling without judgment. So maybe you notice for a few days, you are in the eight to nine range most days and just kind of notice with compassion and without judgment. Because again, often a lot of my clients are like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. I shouldn't be there. Um, Or start to notice uh, where you are falling on the hunger um, side. Everybody has different hunger and fullness signals. So it takes a lot of time to kind of figure out what that looks like. Some people are thinking that their thirst is hunger. Some people are thinking that their hunger is actually thirst and drinking too much water. It takes some time to to experiment with that. And how this stuff does with eating disorders as well is that people really need to be, we can't be in kind of a weight restoration phase, for example, with someone with anorexia, right? And because someone with anorexia is so um, far removed from hunger and fullness um, signals, and they are their body is not at a place where it can even actually recognize that. Um, so it's really important to kind of be at a place where your body is, is stable enough to do an experiment with this work that um, drops or gains in weight isn't going to like throw you completely off. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I think another tip would be to not compare yourself to others. 
because oh, I think also so as as women, we are always comparing ourselves and it's, especially with me, I know with my history, that was, that used to be really tough for me to go out to eat with my friends because I was always so terrified about looking like I eat so much. And I'm five foot nine, I'm very muscular. I require more calories than some people. And there's also genetic behavioral differences between people that are more excited about food and eat larger quantities than others. And seeing this research help validate me and make me feel better too, knowing that even in that we're different. And I know because my older son, who's genetically related to me, he has this gene. I mean, like food is super exciting to him and, Mm -hmm. you know, and he loves to eat. And that is also a genetic difference. So at the beginning, especially not comparing yourself to others and not feeling ashamed or guilty because you eat more than your friend or less or whatever, knowing that we all have different bodies, we all eat different meals, different times of the day and have different metabolisms. So just kind of focus on your own journey. Um, and it takes time. It's not something This is not going to be an overnight thing. Is it Chelsea? Like how long no. can it take for some people to start learning some of, some of these uh, concepts and skills. Yeah. I tell everyone, give yourself a, a journey long length. You know, this is the rest of your life actually, because, um, our bodies will change as we age. They change with illness. They change with, um, life circumstances, stress. And so returning back to the intuitive concepts will be a lifelong process, but to even to kind of get to that baseline, it takes a long time, especially if you've spent a long time in the diet mindset. So it takes a lot of compassion, a lot of patience with yourself. Um, again, no, non-comparison to anybody else. There are truly differences. And I love what you said too, like loving food is not a bad thing. We make it such a bad thing sometimes, but we love food. You know, a lot of folks love food and that's not a bad thing. That's okay to enjoy food. And that's a part of the intuitive eating process also. Yeah. And I think as you go along in the journey, just being aware that sometimes those old food rules, they just come up and you're like, wow, I didn't even know I had that food rule. You know, like you think you're, you're, you're coasting and you're feeling good. And then you start doing something a little funny and you're just like, oh, it's because this food was in the off limits, bad category, or this used to be one of those foods that I thought I was quote addicted to, you know, and it's just so amazing how the brain works and and brings those, those things up. And I think where people get most slipped up on, on the journey, you know, someone will come in and say, oh, Chelsea, you know, I, I binged last night and I don't know what that's about. And again, the first question I ask is, well, where were you restricting? either Mm -hmm. physically or mentally. What was the food rule that came up? You know, Mm -hmm. where were you, where was diet culture sneaking its way in? Because that's oftentimes the case of what was the trigger to the binge. You know, in my work, I, I, we talk a lot about emotions and emotional eating and stress eating and all of that sort of stuff. Of course, that comes with the territory of being a therapist. But if we start with where's diet culture coming in, that usually gets to the heart of a binge. Yeah. And it's almost impossible to escape. I mean, if you spend any time on social media or watch any television, there's constant messages of you should be on a diet. You should lose weight. This is what you can do to do it. So if you're triggered by those things, you have to be really careful to step back and try to remove yourself from a little while until you feel like you're strong enough to be able to 
block those messages and not get pulled into that desire, you know, because even dieting can become addictive, you know, like, Ooh, that excitement of I'm on a new diet. It's going to work this time. And you get that flood of, you know, dopamine and motivation and not doing it can feel a little bit like, like a letdown, like, ah, I'm not going to go on a diet because I saw this ad that promoted this thing, you know? Yeah. I think there's a big, I talk a lot about this with clients as well, a big grieving process. Oftentimes that folks have to go through when we're talking about letting go of dieting, or we're talking about letting go of weight loss, because people believe that, you know, once I lose the weight, then I will go on all the dates I wanted to go on. I will wear the swimsuit I wanted to wear. I'll go on those vacations. I'll be more outgoing. And with the reality of fat phobia in our culture, I validate that and say, yes, it's easier it to live in a smaller body in this culture. But if you're waiting to live your life, you know, and, um, you know, before you lose that weight, then you're never going to do anything. And so oftentimes folks are having to let go of that hope and that belief. And that's really addicting as well, that hope and the belief that things will be different when I lose weight. So there's kind of a grieving process of like, Ooh, okay, I'm letting this go and, and life will be different. if I'm not focusing on this. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I've been through that definitely grieving process. But then when you come on the other side of it, it's so liberating. Because then you realize yes. I can have everything I want now. I don't need to wait to a certain size. I don't need to wait to a certain weight. I can start now and you can take control and do the things that you need to do to reach the goals you want to have without depending on weight loss. So once you get on that other side, it just feels like magical, liberating. <laughs> and, and I really feel that if we talk more about this, more people can get there. So let's, let's go a step further and talk about eating disorders. So what are some red flags since, you know, we are in this dieting fat phobic culture, what are some red flags for yeah. eating disorders in children and teens? Yeah. So kids and teens, um, especially rigid behaviors around food. So oftentimes parents will give me a call and say, is this problematic? And I always say, kind of watch it, watch it for a, a little while because um, kids and teens will start to like eliminate one or two foods here that they used to like, especially foods that they used to like. If they're saying, no, I don't like that anymore. I don't want that anymore. Okay, that's something to watch. Um, if they start isolating, right, from friends or they start spending more time engaging in um sports or activity or kind of obsessions, things like that, that's a huge red flag, um, especially if they've been more involved with friends or in social activities. Um, two, I mean, body image stuff is always important to talk with kids about. And so if you're noticing that your kiddo's saying more about their bodies and like, oh, I'm, you know, expressing some anxiety about that, that's a red flag. But oftentimes, you know, and this is the tricky part, eating disorders, thrive in silence. Mm -hmm. So many kids and teens will not say anything. And um, that's a hard thing for a parent because um, they may not catch it till a lot later. And a lot of parents feel guilt about that. And, you know, I'm always saying we live in a culture where those things are often normalized, right? Food rules, um, you know, wanting to be healthier by going on a little diet, those sorts of things. And we're not taught to look for these signs. But the more parents can just kind of keep abreast of 
okay, what was normal for my kid or teen before? And now what are they engaging in? That's, that's different around food, social activities, um, exercise, the more aware parents can be about that. Yeah, that's, those are some great ones. And, you know, I, I have never thought about that, how eating disorders thrive in silence, but it makes sense, especially for girls, because I always tell parents, I feel like boys, I feel like you can kind of tell when they're hiding something or when they've done something, but I feel like <laughs> girls are particularly good at knowing what to do to hide something. And so it, it can be, it can be one of those things where maybe they don't mention anything at all because they know that if they do, it's going to cause mom to be like, huh, why are you saying yeah. that? Now? You know, so yeah. you have to be really vigilant. So what are the things that parents can do to decrease the risk of eating disorders? Are there any sort of protective behaviors or lifestyle habits that families have that can decrease the risk, knowing that we're not ever going to have full control? Eating disorders can happen to any family. So there's not going to be any discrimination. You know, it can happen yeah. anywhere, but what can yeah. we do to decrease the risk? Yeah, great question. Because parents don't cause eating disorders. That was a huge myth kind of back in the 80s, right? Mm -hmm. Parents can certainly contribute to kind of our culture um, and uh, that sort of thing, but parents don't cause eating disorders and we need to reduce the shame around that. Mm -hmm. But first and foremost, parents can model and develop a great relationship with their own food and body, um, especially not making in front of not making any comments in front of kids that are degrading towards your own body. Mm -hmm. Looking in the mirror, being like, "Oh, these clothes don't fit. Oh, they don't look right." I mean, especially avoiding any of that, um, and then also kind of not moralizing food. And by that, I mean don't put good and bad labels on food. Um, kids pick up on that. They are so perceptive. As soon as you're eating, you know, your ice cream at the end of the night and, or whatever, right? And you're like, oh, I shouldn't be having this. Your kid is going to pick up on that. And so really enjoying food as well is super important. Mm, this tastes so good. There's no judgment in that. There's no good or bad in that, right? It's just, oh, I am intuitively enjoying this, whatever it is. Um, and I think also not avoiding the topic of body image and diet culture altogether, because oftentimes parents will do that too, is we just won't even talk about it, right? But unfortunately, your kiddo's going to pick it up at school and your kiddo's going to pick it up on the commercials. Social media is rampant. And so having the conversation early about, you know, all bodies are good bodies. Um, wherever your body lands is, is where it's meant to land. Talking about before puberty, right? Your body is going to go through some changes or, um, talking about, you know, how bodies at, at different stages of life are meant to change. Um, and then also if your kid is talking about like, um, oh, that, you know, that person is so fat or making some judgments about that, you know, that's a perfect opportunity to, again, talk about the diversity of bodies and saying, you know, fat is a descriptor. Um, you know, we need to be kind to all bodies. There are no good and bad bodies, um, just like you and me. And so the modeling and having those conversations are hugely important and can um, help kids not develop eating disorders. I want to go through the screen and give you a big hug because I loved everything you just said. So next time I want us to try to be in the same room and record this together in the same room. I think that can help us pull that off. Um, Great. Okay, I, lo I loved everything you said, it's starting from the modeling, knowing that nobody's perfect. And I'll tell you that yeah. parenting has helped me see how I'm very imperfect. <laughs> so, but um, 
but modeling. And so learning intuitive eating, and that's what my book is about is how we can teach our body or teach our children. But if, if we don't do it ourselves, it's going to be harder to teach our children how to eat intuitively, knowing that nobody's perfect. And we just start where we are modeling that, but also modeling acceptance and compassion. I think sometimes people feel that if they don't degrade their bodies, they have to go around saying like, I love my butt or I'm beautiful all the time. And no, it doesn't have to be like that. We're still, we're still human and we still want to fit in the tribe. And we still have this feeling of, you know, there's certain things we have to do to fit in the tribe, but modeling more of acceptance and compassion, you know, you don't necessarily have to say anything, but definitely don't go around saying like, Oh, I'm so fat. I'm just, and you know, something that women say a lot, I'm so disgusting. I'm so gross. I mean, that's so sad. It's so sad. And I used to say that all the time in front of my kids. And I thought that having two boys meant that they wouldn't pick up on that. When my oldest son was six, he started sucking at sucking in his stomach in in front Mm -hmm. of the mirror. And I was like, OMG. Wow. Mm -hmm. I had to stop Mm -hmm. immediately. That was to me that wake up call, like, this is getting through to him, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't want to continue to perpetuate that cycle, but working on, on that self-talk to ourselves and what we model in front of our children is, is really important. And I think and the I, other thing I wanted to add to it, and I'll get back to you in yeah. a second too, was whenever we, we talk to our kids, because I think sometimes we've gotten used to like, okay, well, you shouldn't eat that because it makes you fat or, or it's going to give you disease or whatever. Instead of focusing on the positives, what makes you feel good? And, and giving them that respect and individuality that they can make the choice of foods that actually make them feel good because every person is different. Instead of saying you can't eat that because of this and this and this, what do you choose to eat that makes you feel good? And I just kind of wanted to add to that, but go ahead because I interrupted you. Yes. No, that's so great because, you know, kids, if you watch them from a very young age, are naturally intuitive. Mm-hmm. We are all born as intuitive beings. We all have hunger and fullness within us. Um, and so giving them, you know, the choice and also talking about like what feels good, what's going to feel good in your body, um, you know, that often comes very naturally to kids if you're providing, you know, kind of a wide variety of foods for them to try and eat. Um, but the other thing I was going to say about parenting is that, you know, it's never too late to start and no matter what, what you've said, you know, thus far or what you've done thus far, your own relationship to food and your body, it's never too late to start and bringing, just like you said, the acceptance and compassion piece to all of those moments for yourself that have already happened of like, listen, this is the culture that we're in. You know, you've been struggling. There's been, this has been hard for all of us, that there's no kind of guilt and shame. We don't need to kind of build that up. Um, either that we can start now and bring acceptance and compassion to all of those other moments. Yeah. And I know that we all have different personalities and I'm a very open, I'm an extrovert. I talk about everything and I'm very open with my family and I've had to have conversations with my kids because I still have freak out moments, you know, And, and this is something I talk about in the, in the book, but especially right now, I have a teenager in my house and he eats such a large quantity of food. And there's still a part of my brain that literally freaks out. Like, yeah. 
it, it goes straight into like, I can't even, you know, it's like even hard to describe, but it like literally goes like 20 or 30 years in the future. And like, I'm seeing my son like on the couch and like, not having, and I don't know why I do this, but it's like, I have a freak out moment because I have had this history of being in this recurrent dieting and that fat is bad and was told as, when I was younger that it's not acceptable to be fat. And so because of that, sometimes I have these moments where I, I slip a little bit and I may do things that are not as helpful. And so I tell my kids, you know, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to, you know, like get, <laughs> yeah. get snappy or whatever. It's, it's because of this and yeah. this and, and they understand. So I think that sometimes we just have to know that, especially when we have these decades and decades of dieting and believing a certain thing about fat mm. and about food, it's, it's not going to go away overnight and we have to keep working through those things. But to be honest with your kids so that they understand where that's coming from, I think is, I think can be helpful in the way that you talk about it. I think it can be helpful, but anyway, I don't know. That's just one of those things that I've gone through. So yeah. All right. So Let's talk about physical activity real quick before we wrap it up, because whenever I was talking about what feels good, I feel like that can, re that can encompass so many things. It can encompass um, movement too, and what other activities we choose to take part in, friends we have, you know, like starting to use intuitive everything in our lives, you know, what's too much, what's too little. So how about physical activity? How, what role does physical activity have in, in joy and mental health? Yeah. Oh, this is one of my favorite topics. I'm glad we're talking about it. Um, the research is clear that movement and exercise is super, super beneficial. Um, however, we need to be clear on what that means for an individual. And so, um, you know, I think again, culturally exercise is presented as no pain, no gain, um, just grind it out, right? Everybody's posting about their workouts, workouts on social media, um, very CrossFit heavy, which I'm not bashing CrossFit, but it, you know, it's very intense um, exercise. And so um, when we talk about movement, it's really coming back to, again, what is gonna feel good in your body? and you know, this has kind of been a personal journey for me as well, because there's been a whole exercise component of my, my recovery of, you know, I've been addicted, to, very addicted in the past and also have been like a runner and love to run. Right. Mm -hmm. But as, as I've done damage to my body after all of the running, I have to come back to both an intuitive and disciplined approach of like, Chelsea, you're not running anymore. Like you have to stop for a little bit and do some rehab. And that's very intuitive. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to uh, take care of those knees. You've got to take care of that back. You've got to do something really, really different. Um, so I think this whole cultural approach as well of like, you know, grind it out, just get to the gym, just do your work, try to burn calories, all of that sort of thing. In my mind, exercise is not about burning calories. Exercise is about feeling good. Um, it's about in the moment, how do you feel with your heart pumping? How do you feel with your um, muscles stretching? How do you feel um, with different types of exercise? There's so many different types that people don't even think about, right? We often think about the heavy stuff or yoga kind of, right? But what about dancing? What about swimming? What about even just going and sitting in the pool and kind of splashing your arms? What about um, all sorts of stuff that, that may feel really good? I think we've taken the joy out of exercise completely. 
in our society. It's not joyful anymore. We do, I personally like the gym. However, if you really think about gym culture, right? Like we go to a building and we hop on a machine or we do something that's like, you know, picking heavy stuff up and putting it down. It's, it's almost unnatural in some ways. And I'm not, again, I like going to the gym and that's, that's joyful for me. But just in general, the culture around exercise is problematic because it doesn't help people connect to their bodies and enjoy moving them. Yeah. Oh, I agree with everything you said. And, and particularly the point about how exercise has become either like a punishment oh, or a yes. prerequisite for eating. You know, like, okay, I just ate a cupcake and I have to run it off or I can't have pizza until I do this. And because of that, because, you know, that connection, people have started to almost develop an aversion to exercise. And studies confirm this, that whenever people exercise for the purpose of losing weight or getting fit, they tend to drop off sooner than if they exercise for the purpose of feeling good or reaching mastery. So some people definitely exercise because, you know, they want to get better. They want to get better marathon time or whatever, you know, instead of being like, I got to grind it out because I deserve this because I overate last night, you know, but, um, you know, I, I agree. I personally love exercise. I've always loved exercise, but it's definitely become more joyful when it's completely disconnected to my weight. It's not connected at all to calories. It is connected to feeling amazing. And that feeling afterwards that gives me so much energy and just happiness for my day. Like to me, it's, it's like a requirement for being happy mm-hmm. is to be, to be able to exercise. And thankfully we live in a part of the country where we got a lot of beautiful sunny days and we can walk outside and have a yeah. low impact, pleasant walk and not have to do, you know, these crazy right. things. So yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, in regards to exercise being like, oh, I need to do this because I ate too much or so that I can eat whatever I want. In in the eating disorder world, that that is the same as purging, right? So purging, often people just think of self-induced vom- vomiting, right? But we, I often see folks with, you know, the diagnosis of bulimia because they are using exercise as a compensatory behavior. And exercise should not be used that way. Um, it's, it was never meant to do, to be used that way. So just kind of recognizing that too, if that's kind of going on for you, just, you know, that's in my mind, an eating disorder behavior. That's what we're often talking about in therapy. Exactly. And it doesn't work that way anyway. So <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. always way underestimate. And so as far as like weight loss and, and there's plenty of studies that show this, it's really not the best way to do that. Really just I tell people joyful movement, use exercise because it helps you feel good. It, it helps your muscles and your bones stay strong, not as some sort of calorie compensation method. So yeah. that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back and ask you a personal question. What yeah. I ask all of my podcast guests, what personal habit are you most proud of? How did you mm-hmm. develop it and how do you maintain it? And this could be habit about anything. Such a great question. I think the one I come back to that's now relatively subtle for me is checking in with myself at least once a day. And that simply means taking a moment to see how am I doing emotionally, physically, 
um, in my relationships, just kind of like, how's, how's it going today, Chels? Um, you know, taking that moment to check in because that often gives me a lot of information about how to proceed. So, um, I mean, I was, I was thinking about even exercise, you know, walking, going like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym and I walk in and I'm like, boy, I'm not feeling this. And I walk straight out, you know, like yeah. if, if I'm exhausted or I'm feeling like not so great, then it's might not be the time for me to be there. And that's kind of the personal habit of like, I'm, I feel pretty tuned in to what's happening for me on a day-to-day basis. Now, has that been the case for forever? Absolutely not. I've been very disconnected. Um, and it took a long time to even be able to trust, you know, what's going on for me, right? It's very scary for a lot of folks who have the habit of, for example, running every day um, to say, oh, I'm going to trust my body or I'm going to trust how I'm feeling if I feel exhausted and maybe that run's not good, right? Even though it's on my training plan. Um, but the more you can do that, the more your body is going to work for you. You know, your body's going to be like, thank you so much for that rest. I so appreciate that. We can work hard for you tomorrow, right? Um so that's, I think, what I'm most proud of because it gives me so much variety of what I can actually do. I'm tuned into, you know, how my body feels, but also like how I'm feeling and what's going on for me. That's beautiful. And that's so powerful. It really is. It's you're in touch with your intuition, your inner wisdom that tells you what's right for you. And I think that that also comes with time too. I feel like I'm getting closer to that. And I had uh, a few months ago, what I called my donkey moment where literally my intuition like was like a donkey sitting on the ground. It wouldn't go forward for certain things. And it was almost like having like a little nervous breakdown, like a little mini (laughs) existential crisis. And I was like, Oh, it's because I haven't been listening to my intuition. And finally it was just like a donkey. It's going to sit down. It's not going to move until Mm -hmm. things get solved, you know? And so now I, when that, after that happened, I can recognize it better now. And when, when I feel like that donkey's about to sit down and be like, Mm-mm, we're not going there. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I get it now. Uh, yeah, something's happening. But uh-huh. I, think, I think what's also important, and I think why it's easier as we get older is because we also have to let go of expectations from others. Because think of that, you said walking oh. you to the gym and then you're like, I don't want to be here. But what if you're just like, oh, well, everybody saw me and I'm here and I need to exercise now. But, you know, you had to yeah. in that moment not care what anybody thought of you or not yeah. care about any other expectations. You just had to be like, nope, I'm not feeling it. I'm out of here. I'm going to go do something that makes me, that brings me more joy right now. Yes, exactly. That's a huge piece. And also a part of like setting boundaries for yourself mm-hmm. around what is helpful and healthy and feels good for you because oftentimes setting boundaries means you might make someone else upset, right? You don't go to, I don't know, happy hour every Wednesday anymore because you, you want that time to be doing something else. For example, um, you know, that may make some of your friends upset, but that's a really helpful boundary when you're tuned into your intuition, for example, not judging anybody who goes to happy hour on Wednesday, right? (laughs) But (laughs) have a good time. But I think, yeah, it's, it's another practice I kind of use is like, well, who says that I can't do that? Who says um, that when I walk into the gym, I have to stay or that everybody, you know, that I need to be here those sorts of things. Who says I can't just walk out of here? And usually that helps me just kind of take a, mo- take a moment to just detach from that and be like, I'm going to do whatever the heck I need to do and want to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it. That's awesome. 
Well, Chelsea, can you tell us a little bit more about what services you offer and whom you offer them to and how listeners can connect with you? Yes. So um, I'm a licensed mental health counselor. And right now I'm only doing individual and family therapy. Um, And I do specifically eating disorders, um, anxiety and depression. Um, I'm in Yakima. So if you want to see me in person, um, then uh, I'm in Yakima. That's where my office is located. But I do some online services and I can only see folks in Washington. I'm only licensed in Washington. So um, you can find me at ChelseaBuffumTherapy.com and all of my services are there, how to contact me, all that good stuff, um, insurance I take. Um, but hopefully in the future, I'm hoping to run some eating disorder support groups. Um, those will also be in person in Yakima. So I know you've got a lot of listeners everywhere. That won't apply to them. But if anybody's interested, give me a shout. But you do have a good Facebook page where you post things about all of these topics. And I really like following your Facebook page too. So what is your Facebook page under? Is it Chelsea Buffum Therapy as well? Yep. It's Chelsea Buffum Therapy. I also have an Instagram. Um, It's posted less often, but I post a bunch of like uh, books that I'm reading and, um, you know, nice things that other people are saying. So that's also Chelsea Buffum Therapy. All of that. You can find me on any of those platforms. Awesome. Well, even before we started this recording, I knew that we would have way more to talk about. So this will be continued to be continued dot, dot, dot. We will definitely get together again, maybe next time in the same room. That would be really fun. Yeah. And I really thank you for being on Veggie Doctor Radio today. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And have a plantastic day, Chelsea. (laughs) Thanks, you too. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. I hope you loved it. But now it's time for another listener question. And this question comes from Angela from Yakima, Washington. Angela says, My family always complains that beans gives them gas, which is sometimes true. How can we eat legumes without the noxious gases that follow? Help me, Dr. Yami. Oh my goodness, this is such a great question. Angela, thank you for asking this question with so much honesty. I know what it feels like because the same thing happens in my house, especially since I live with three males. And I should have looked that up. I should have looked up whether men release more gas than women or maybe they just feel freer to do it than women do. But I nerded out a little bit on this question, so I hope you guys enjoy this answer. Obviously, gas comes from different places. Sometimes it comes from the top, sometimes it comes from the bottom. But gas is composed of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, hydrogen, and methane. This is 79% of all expelled gases have these compounds in them. And guess what? those are all odorless. So those gases themselves have no odor. The odor in gas comes from sulfur-containing compounds, short-chain fatty acids, and ammonia. And those are being released by bacteria. Now, when it comes to burping, or gas that is expelled from our mouths, The major source of stomach gas is from air swallowing, and a lot of people swallow a lot of air. Things that can increase gas in your stomach 
are gonna be things like carbonated drinks. So you may have noticed that if you have a soda, you're gonna have more stomach gas. Eating chips and not chewing well, things like that where you're gonna be swallowing a lot of air. Also, talking a lot while you're eating, eating quickly, chewing gum. So what can you do to decrease the amount of burping you have is eat slower, chew very well, don't talk as much when you eat, avoid chewing gum, carbonated drinks, and those kinds of things. And I'll talk about some warning signs in a little bit, things that you need to watch out for, that this is more than just you know, benign gas. Now, intestinal gas, hydrogen and methane, is produced by fecal bacteria. Now, I, I like to tell my families that I don't think gas is a problem. I really think for the majority of the time, you should be happy that you have gas because it means that you're eating lots of fiber and that you have good gut bacteria. So you get those resistant starches, those undigestible um, food particles, fiber, things like that into the gut, and that is called prebiotics. So those materials are actually feeding your good gut bacteria, and they get so happy, and they give us positive feedback. They're good for us, it's symbiotic. Most people pass between 500 and 1500 milliliters of gas per day, and this is what gas through the rectum, so the lower gas, or they pass gas 10 to 20 times per day. What do you think? Do you think you're around there, more, less? You're afraid to pass gas? You shouldn't be, be happy, you should be proud. Okay, so what are alarm features? So what are things that would concern you, whether it's for yourself or for your child, that this is a problem? If you're having abdominal pain, especially at night, if you're having weight loss, blood in your stool, diarrhea, vomiting, um, discomfort with abdominal bloating, if it's becoming that kind of a problem, it's more than just benign gas. You may have an issue, you may have a digestion issue, maybe some kind of food sensitivity, uh, chronic inflammatory disease, whatever. So if it hurts, if you're losing weight, if there's blood anywhere, if you're having vomiting, that's not good. It's more than just benign gas. Other things that can happen, which is very common and I see it a lot, lactose intolerance. There is a lot of dairy in our food in the United States, and it's in everything, it's every restaurant, it's everywhere. So there are some, it definitely differs between ethnic groups, but there are some ethnic groups that there are over 90% of the people of that group, after the age of about two or three, are going to have lactose intolerance. So the older you are, the more likely that you are going to have lactose intolerance, and it's very common. Of course, there's some ethnic groups that are more resistant or protected from it, and some that it's very, very high. But in the general population, probably about 60, 65% of people at some point in their life will develop some lactose intolerance. So pay attention to dairy and um, what it does to you in your gut. However, beans, so important, so healthy, so health-promoting, the fiber, the antioxidants, the resistant starches, the prebiotics for your gut. So I want you to eat beans. If you're not used to eating beans, the rule of thumb is start low and go slow. Just start with a quarter cup of beans per day. That's only three tablespoons. A quarter cup of beans per day 
an increase by a quarter cup per week. The other things is the smaller beans, so peas, lentils, split peas, black beans, black-eyed peas, the smaller beans are going to be easier to digest, so start with those. Also, make sure that your beans are well cooked. Cook them well. They should not be al dente. They should be nice and soft. And if you're cooking your own beans, another way to get rid of some of those resistant starches, those undigestible components of the food, is to rinse, I mean, to soak and rinse. So I soak mine usually overnight, so 12 hours, and then in the morning, drain them and rinse them well. That gets some of those resistant starches off of them. Then cook them, and then after you cook them, drain them and rinse them again. So that helps get some of those undigestible components that are making your gut bacteria super duper active and happy. There are other things that you can do too whenever you cook your own beans. Uh, there is a Mexican herb called epazote, E-P-A-Z-O-T-E, -E, that you can put in the beans while you are cooking them to help break down some of those complex sugars. And then there is an Asian sea vegetable called kombu, K-O-M-B-U, which you can put in the soaking water and you can also cook your beans with it and it does the same thing. It makes them more digestible. If you're not cooking your own beans, but you are going to be using canned beans, again, you want to drain and rinse them well because that takes off some of those undigestible components. Other things that you can do to help if you're still having a lot of gas, and of course, like I said, this is not painful or causing any of those alarm features, is consider starting a good probiotic. That can help you too. Decrease your intake of artificial sugars. Some artificial sugars can give a lot of gas. And then if you're worried about foul smelling gas, this usually comes from foods that are high in protein and high in fat. So avoid fried foods, avoid foods that have a lot of refined oils and fats in them. That's where the foul smelling stuff is coming from is the high protein, high fat foods. Um, smaller meals can help as well. And then there are some people that are just gonna have a little bit more problems with the foods that have more resistant starches like cabbage, Brussels sprouts, onions, broccoli. So start low with those things, increase, and then see what your tolerance level is for those as well. I do have some friends that use Beano. I've never used it before, but you know, whatever. I'm proud of my gas, so it's not something that I'm worried about, um, but you could try those kinds of things as well. So Angela, that was a fantastic question. My answer was probably way longer than you anticipated, but go for those beans, those health-promoting, longevity-producing, delicious beans with lots of fiber. Try some of these tips. Hopefully it'll help you, and let me know how it goes. Thanks for listening. I'll see you guys next time. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com 
or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash rocket surgeons music. Also, for more information on my work, you can find me at Veggie Fit Kids on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, or you can email me at veggiedoctor at veggiefitkids.com. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and contact me if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day.